This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week. We've got insights from the magazine and a lot more. And Carol, in this week's broadcast, Wall Street masking the cost of climate change for coastal real estate. You're going to want to listen to this one for sure. Yes, indeed. And then Sony and Nintendo really have to worry about Microsoft. We'll check into that one as well. And banks pumping billions of dollars into ETFs with something called heartbeat trades. I didn't know about this, but I have to say, you just look at the chart and you go, oh, wait. Plus the world's cheapest hospital chain. Well, it needs to cut costs even more. But first, Carol, AOC, she's continuing to shake things up down in D.C. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez continues to garner attention for many reasons, and that includes an app that helped boost her grassroots campaign. The story, it's in the politics section of Business Week uh, magazine, which you can find online. Josh Green, national correspondent for the magazine, and he joins us uh, from D.C. So what is REACH? Well, REACH is a, uh, politi- a new piece of political tech, an organizing app that evolved organically from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign. Um, now, in the political world, the most interesting thing about AOC, as she's known, uh, was that her campaign was really a marvel of grassroots organizing. Nobody had ever heard of her. Nobody imagined that a socialist could knock off the longtime incumbent Democrat who was probably going to be the next Speaker of the House. And here, out of nowhere, uh, you know, she organized New York's fourth district in Queens and Bronx uh, and, and you know, essentially took that seat away from Joe Crowley, the incumbent. Well, one of the ways she did that was that a couple of volunteers on her campaign built uh, a mobile organizing app to go out and get registered, uh, you know, young socialists, uh, working class minorities uh, who, who, who are so plentiful in her district and were really the key to her victory. Now they're taking that tech and they've started a company called Reach that is going to make this available more broadly to Democratic campaigns. Well, take a step back, though, Josh, because I'm just curious, like what these guys were thinking, what was it that wasn't working about grassroots campaigning today that they knew they needed something different to make it more effective, more productive? Right. Well, what's what's so interesting about political tech, uh, anybody who comes from the tech world into the world of politics, the first thing they think is, wow, this is completely antiquated. (laughs) This makes no sense. And so the way political canvassing, searching for supporters traditionally works is you get a list on paper of registered voters and their addresses, and you go and you try and knock on their doors and have um, frankly, awkward conversations between two strangers in a doorway about politics. I've gone out with canvassers. Right. This is just the way that politics has been conducted back since the Tammany Hall days. Right. The, and, if, and if you can get the door open, right, to begin with. Right, right. I mean, no, who's who's home? Who answers their door anymore? Nobody, right? So so, so it's a problem. Uh, and so the, the two people that started the company, uh, Jake DeGroote and Leo uh, Susan, realized that this isn't a very smart way of doing things, especially not as a way of reaching the kind of people that AOC wanted to reach, people who are outside the political system, who may not have voted in the last election, but could be turned on to this exciting, charismatic new candidate. So what they did is they took the voter list and they uploaded it into an app that was searchable, and that allowed them to go to the places where her voters or her potential voters actually congregated, places like bars and coffee shops and farmers markets and subway platforms. And lo and behold, when primary day came around, she had the votes to knock off the incumbent in what was undoubtedly the biggest upset of the 2018 cycle. So was it just a case, Josh, of just finding more people, loading up more people into the voter base? I mean, what was it that really made the difference? I think what made the difference is the mobility, that Mm -hmm. essentially politics as it was being conducted up until 2018 uh, was 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 based on a lifestyle that people don't live anymore. Knocking on your door and trying to catch you at home and calling you on your landline phone and hoping that you'll talk to a stranger. Well, who picks up their phone anymore? You know, a lot of people don't even have a landline anymore. So what this did essentially was take the process of canvassing and modernize it for our new era, especially um, to match the lifestyles of the people in that district. Democrats traditionally rely on young people and minorities as two very important uh, components of, of their electorate. Barack Obama was able to mobilize these people, but Hillary Clinton, by and large, wasn't because mm-hmm. these two groups in particular are difficult to reach. 
One of the things that has Democrats generally, not just Democratic socialists, but mainstream Democrats excited and interested in this technology is that AOC's campaign managed to reach and activate these voters. And these are voters that every Democratic candidate up and down the ticket would like to be able to reach and to win over. And it wasn't just a case case of reaching them. Those that were reached, they were more likely to go out and vote for her, right? That was, yeah. Reach, Reach kept some data analytics. They, they invented this app on the fly, really only in the latter stages of the campaign. So it wasn't around for that long. But what they found was that it was just a more efficient way of canvassing supporters. And the people who were contacted uh, through Reach were more likely to turn up and vote on Election Day than those that weren't. That's another positive sign about the technology. So you talked to these two individuals, and I understand that they actually came up with the app, or one of them did. They pulled an all-nighter and kind of came up with it and put it out to work. So what happened after folks started seeing them use it? Did it, I think you're right that it, it kind of got passed around uh, to different campaigns? Yeah, it did. I mean, it, it, the moment AOC won her campaign, was it, it was essentially a political earthquake. Everyone thought, oh my gosh, like, who is this woman? How they do what it? was her campaign? How did she do it. And then the next thought you have, if you're a Democratic candidate, is how can I do the same thing? And, you know, word got around in, in socialist and left wing campaigns that one of the things that had helped her was reach this organizing app. Uh, and AOC, I think, to her credit, encouraged her campaign to share the app with other like minded campaigns. That's Josh Green. And Jason, of course, he's our go to guy when anything is going on with elections. And again, constantly is tapping into campaigns and how they are doing things differently. We saw that with AOC. Well, and it goes back to all the great work he did with The Devil's Bargain Mm -hmm. and Steve Bannon and the effect that Bannon and his crew had on the right, now helping us understand what's going on on the left. So across China, millions of people are ordering in several meals a day, Jason. They're also, they can order in groceries, haircuts, whatever else they need, thanks to the country's huge delivery market. And it doesn't cost a lot of money. Very different from here. Not only does it not cost a lot, it costs less mm-hmm. in many cases than going outside your house. This is a fascinating story. Jeff Muskus, he edited the section, as he always does, in technology this week. He joins us in New York, Meituan. It's a juggernaut. Absolutely, yeah. It uh, controls uh, almost two-thirds of uh, China's $35 billion market for, as you say, all these kinds of delivery services. Uh, and the, the other third or so is controlled by China's most valuable company, Alibaba. And so that, that set up a, a sort of titanic a once-in-a-generation uh, brawl here. I mean, I dare say that Carol and I both reading this had a number of wait what moments. I mean, just the size and scope, the history of this. Take us back to how this company started and this entrepreneur who had some fits and starts, to say the least, getting into this business. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Wang Zing, the uh, the 40-year-old founder of, of Meituan, uh, you know, first started uh, trying to build social networks uh, in China. First, uh, you know, a, a sort of a Friendster or Facebook uh, lookalike, and then something that looked an awful lot like Twitter um, with a handful of co-founders. And uh, after first blowing through the you know early stakes from friends and family and then uh, suffering crackdowns from the Chinese government decided to uh, try to do something a little less uh, potentially controversial um, so uh, spent uh, uh, heavily thanks to uh, the early investment actually by uh, Alibaba's uh, uh, founder Jack Ma um, to sort of uh, take the lead in what what was uh, known for uh, some time as the uh, the hundred Groupon war in China. Well, and what's interesting though is he so he starts this company, he gets the investment from Jack Ma of Alibaba, right? But he also starts kind of spreading out some of his businesses or where he wants to kind of do business extensions, right? Right. And that costs more money, and that's when Alibaba says, eh, "We're not so interested in doing another round," right? Yeah. The the uh, the terms that Alibaba said at, at a certain point where uh, Meituan was, uh, you know, the the biggest ish player in the field, along with Tencent backed Jinping, uh, was, you know, look, we'll, we'll give you more money to uh, to stretch out further. This is around 2015, but you have to agree to basically merge the app with Alibaba, including a lot of the customer data and all that good stuff. Because this was coming at a point where the Groupon model just wasn't going to be sustainable. They were essentially going to run into the same thing they had run in in, in their previous startups, which was like, mm, it's just not going to grow. And they really got into this delivery business. And that's when it really accelerates, right? Yeah. Meituan alone now uh, delivers uh, some 
uh, you know, 20 million or so uh, item uh, delivery orders a day uh, through about 600,000 uh, delivery agents across uh, about 3,000 cities in China. 20 million And put that in day. context for us versus <laughs> yeah. like a Grubhub or something like that. Yeah, Grubhub, which is the biggest player uh, in, in a comparable market in the U.S., uh, really is delivering about 500,000 orders. 500,000 versus 20 million. Yeah. That's and, amazing. And, and Meituan's customer base is close to 400 million people. In a given year, that's just staggering. All right, so I, all right, so they decided not to kind of roll their business into Alibaba, right? And then so Alibaba goes one way, and Meituan goes goes their their own way, correct? Right. right. In fact, absorbing uh, it's it's uh, then rival Dianping with help and, and funding from Tencent. So uh, after that, uh, Alibaba said basically, we'll, we'll we'll try to spend you into oblivion and, and buy the market for ourselves. Well, and that's what's important right now. These two are head to head in competition, right? And so there's a price war going on, which is wonderful for consumers, which goes back to what you said at the beginning, Jason, that it's cheaper to get something delivered than actually go to the checkout counter and pay for it. Absolutely. Often on the order of, you know, 40 to 80 percent cheaper, depending on what what you want for dinner. And so is that sustainable? Are these guys going to essentially drive themselves into oblivion by this price war? It's a a real gamble. I mean, uh, you know, Alibaba has plenty of cash to burn. Um, but uh, you know, it's also a, a company entering its, its third decade with you know public market investors to appease, and so that's sort of uh, you know Jing's, uh, Wang Jing's uh, gamble here that uh, he's betting that Alibaba has about another year or so it can do this, and, and they have the the money to keep going for several years. Tell us about this guy because I just find anybody who's going up against Alibaba man has got to have um, a lot of nerve. Uh, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this character because I think um, he's got a role model that. that that's written about in the story, and it's Jeff Bezos. That's right. Yeah, as, as you guys kind of alluded, he's uh, he's really um, doubled down on the Bezos reinvestment model. This idea that uh, you know succeeding to some degree in a particular business means you have uh, money to play with to mm-hmm. uh, try and expand into an adjacent business. And so, you know, as they've gotten better at uh, food delivery, he took over China's movie ticket uh, online market. He basically created the market for movie tickets online. There, that sort of thing. One thing that I want to make sure people understand because I didn't fully comprehend it. I'm sure you did already, Carol, is the market opportunity here because Mm. of Chinese population. The U.S. has 10 cities with a million or more people. China has 156. I I, I I stopped cold while I was reading that. Can they get to a sizable chunk of this market? It seems uh, reasonable to to believe. Yeah, I mean, th- that's the other real, real reason that Alibaba has to try and spend them into the ground here. I mean, the, depending on, on who you ask, I'd say a, a relatively conservative estimate is that this $35 billion market for delivery services of all kinds will basically be about $800 billion a year that's by 2023. And yeah. a lot of that growth is going to come at the expense of old line conventional e-commerce businesses like Alibaba, especially like Alibaba. The law of large numbers. But, you know, what's interesting, this company is in profit. Profitable, which isn't surprising if they're having these pricing wars right now, right? True. I mean, the, the part of the problem is, is yeah, that they're in this, this billions of dollars a year war of subsidies, and, and part of it is, as you say, this, this Bezos model of um, you know trying to jump into new, very expensive businesses whenever they see an opening. I feel like whenever I read a story about this, I just think about what's going on in China and how much is being done on your phone, right? Ahead of, we do a lot of delivering, but only if you're or delivery only when you're in kind of large cities, right? right. I thought States. maybe you were talking about. <laughs> a side hustle that I didn't know about that you no, were delivering not, food. No, I'm not doing any of that. But it's just fascinating how much far ahead or further ahead that they are than like the United States, right? Yeah, this this has been a huge, I mean, leapfrog moment, certainly for people in the cities there. And, and you know, as you might imagine, it's, it's because uh, of some relatively unique advantages that China has, but also some disadvantages. Like yeah. it, it's more appealing to uh, to order in all the time when, you know, the, the traffic is horrible right outside your door. That's editor Jeff Muskis. And Carol, what I love about that story is it sort of takes some twists and turns. You know about Alibaba, you know about Tencent, obviously. And here comes this company that both represents something from a commercial and from a corporate perspective, but also from a consumer perspective as well. Right. And I just love the relationship between Meituan and Alibaba, right? Alibaba basically, you know, helped get that company started and now they're enemies, it feels like. Well, everybody wants a piece of the video game business, it seems, these days. Google 
the latest, and maybe Apple even later than that, aiming to be the Netflix of this sector. Garrett DeVink joins us with the latest. Everybody loves video games. Uh, who's going to win? That's a great question. And, you know, it's interesting because video games obviously has been something that the tech giants have been into before. Obviously, Google has the huge Android app store. Mobile gaming is a huge part of the industry. But we're talking right now about sort of that hardcore console gaming industry. So people who use Xboxes, Playstations, and really expensive PCs to play these sort of large, very expensive games that take years and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars to make. And so the technological change we're going through right now allows those expensive games to be streamed through the internet just like shows and TV on Netflix even though you're playing a game you don't need you won't need to have a console or a PC and so that allows the tech giants Apple Google Microsoft, maybe even Amazon, to jump into this industry and really disrupt it. Well, and Gary, before we get too far away from that, I, w- I want to go back because I think when people think about video games, they think about exactly what you're talking about. You know, you got to buy the latest console and what are you playing on and when's the next big game coming out? They're like movie releases to some extent. Some of that may not change, but like you say, this whole notion of that hardware piece, that's radical, right? Yeah, I mean, we've had hardware consoles for decades, and they really became popular, especially in North America, in the 80s with Nintendo coming out, and then Sony quickly following with their PlayStation. And in the early 2000s, Microsoft sort of fought their way into the market with the Xbox. But for that whole 30-year period, you've essentially had a new console come out every four to five, six, seven years, and it costing you, you know, between four and five hundred dollars. And most people upgrade, and some people love Xbox, some people love PlayStation, and the way that that industry has worked is those companies have then gone and gotten exclusive deals with games makers to sort of bring you to their console because you want to play Halo or you want to play you know, Red Dead Redemption 2. And at this point, if we're going to be streaming games and through a subscription service, that really shakes that all up. And so how does it shake up the video game makers? Because those are stocks. We talk about them just about every day, I feel like, whether it's Activision Blizzard or EA who or take two uh, for that matter how does it change the equation for them so those companies i mean like you said almost like movie releases in some cases bigger than movie releases right so red dead redemption 2 when that came out uh, last year i believe it, it made 725 million dollars in its opening weekend so that's more than the latest avengers movie made in its opening weekend so this is a, a big money production it takes years to make hundreds of millions of dollars to put together hundreds of workers working on those games and so the way that those that the the economics of that industry has worked is hoping that people you know, shell out 70 or $80 when the game actually comes forward. And so at this point, those games makers, the ones you mentioned, Ubisoft, Electronic Arts, Take-Two, they still have a lot of power because they have the content. And right. just like HBO hasn't sort of gone away in the Netflix world, in fact, maybe they've gotten stronger if they have that premium content that everyone really wants, they hold a lot of power. So when these streaming services were announced, you know, they, they were announced without any deals with those major game makers. So there's no sense of whether or not those games will actually be available. And if those big tech giants want them to be available, they're really going to have to pay up to get them. Well, and it's so interesting you bring that to the fore because with the Apple event, you know, one of the things that people were so taken with is the fact you have Oprah and Jen Aniston and Big Bird on the stage obviously they've got the content side of the apple tv plus worked out so who's got the edge apple google microsoft none of the above I think Microsoft is probably the one that you want to look at is probably the most interesting at this point because they've been in in gaming for years, right? With the Xbox business, that's a business that they want to make sure doesn't get you know destroyed by this cloud gaming. So they want to be right at the center of it. They already own um, some serious um, development studios. They of course bought Minecraft several years ago. That was a 2.5 billion dollar acquisition for one of the most popular games out there. And so they have the expertise. They have the industry knowledge, and they already have some of the games to really make a splash, but we don't know exactly what their service is going to be like. There was a memo that was leaked from Microsoft's head of gaming that said, we're going to go big at the next big E3 conference in June. So that's sort of the the video game industry's annual big conference. And so we'll see what they have up their sleeves. So much of it is mobile, and that clearly Mm -hmm. seems to be a big piece of this, especially for Apple and Google, right? Yeah, and, and, and that's something that these companies are 
or they have the capability of doing, right? And when you looked at Google's presentation, it was all about, you know, being able to play a game on your computer at home and then sort of, oh, got to run, got to get on my commute, you know, transferring that game to your mobile phone in a sort of a seamless experience. You don't need to save and log out, log back in. And that's something that requires a lot of internet infrastructure. That's Garrett DeVink. And Carol, what's so interesting here is we talk a lot about the video game makers mm-hmm. on our daily Bloomberg Business Week show, Matthew Canterman, one of our Love favorites him. who really takes us inside and helps us understand those hit machines. When you think about Activision Blizzard, you think about Take Two Interactive. And yet, Microsoft still looming large as we begin to, well, not you and me, but as <laughs> folks kids. out there, as the kids today continue to figure out new and different ways to play video games, and they're fickle. And I feel like Microsoft in the last few years, between cloud and between video games, man, they are just kind of really taking over a lot of markets. So this story in the finance section is about what some say is the dirty little secret of ETFs. Here to fill in the blanks, reporters Zach Meider and Rachel Evans. So guys, take me back, because you start the story this way, to September and what happened. (laughs) (laughs) So September, we saw this enormous kind of like inflow of cash into a technology fund, followed a day later by an outflow of cash. Now, this is something that we'd been watching for on the ETF team for a while. We'd heard about this uh, big index rebalancing that was going to take place in September as the GICs, the the classification system for the S&P 500 got rejigged. So we were kind of like waiting for this. But when we saw the inflow, it was a, a really, really large one, more than 3 billion kind of coming in on one day and going out the next day. And it kind of like got us thinking, certainly, about kind of like what these kind of trades are all about. We'd seen kind of these trades in the past. Mm-hmm. They typically happen when you do see an index rebalancing. You see kind of the, the ETF like sort of like getting rid of the stock that it no long, longer needs and trying to get in the stock that it does now want to own. Uh, we so a of, normal part of market acti- activity very much and fund part activity. Of market activity. But a very, very large uh, trade. And this was something that I think Zach kind of picked up on. So tell, tell me what you picked up on. <laughs> well, so the... It looks, uh, there's like kind of a totally innocent explanation for it, which is just, this is how this fund needs to get rid of a few stocks and get some other new stocks, and this is how it's doing it. But that's actually not what's really going on. Um, Because if they wanted to do that, then they could just wait until market close on the day that the index change uh, took place, and they could sell the stocks that needed to leave and buy the new ones, or they could swap right. with an investment bank or something. But instead, two days ahead of time, they're having a bank put new stock into the fund, become a big investor in the fund. 14% of, of the fund increases in size. And the the stock that the bank is putting in includes the stock they need to get rid of two days later. So why would they be doing that? It just seems kind of illogical on its face. So why would they be doing that? Because if they sell the stock or swap it with an investment bank, this is like Facebook stock they need to get rid of that's appreciated in value. It's got a big built-in gain. If they sell it, they have to report that gain to the IRS and, and their investors have to pay tax on it. But if an investor in the fund wants to withdraw from the fund and they give that stock away to the investor you know, is compensation for them leaving. There's no tax due. And so they have a bank come in and be an investor for 48 hours. And that's enough to make the tax bill just disappear. And it's legal. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a quirk of kind of like the the ETF structure in that they have the what we call in-kind creations and redemptions. So that means that the way they work when the fund expands in size is that someone delivers over a portfolio of stocks into the fund. They get shares back in return. uh, And that money kind of like swells the fund in assets. If they want to take their money out of a fund, they again go to the the ETF, give over their ETF shares and get a bunch of stocks back from them. So what I thought was really interesting and that Zach kind of like uh, sort of joined the dot on was kind of like what this means from a tax perspective. Yes, it is very much a kind of de facto way in the funds work, but the tax side was really, really interesting. Well, let's go back to the tax side because it actually goes back to a tax law, right, or change in 1969. Take us back there and what right. happened. So 1969. Before really the world of ETFs, right? Yes. 24 years before the first U.S. ETF yeah. even existed. Back then, the only thing Congress was thinking about was mutual funds because they were the only kinds of funds that were regulated by this part of the tax law. Congress was cracking down on tax dodging among insurance companies. And in order to do that, they said insurance companies basically in the 60s, a big bull market, they they had all these investments that had gone way up. And so they said rather than um, 
pay tax on those stocks by, to sell them. We'll just do share buybacks. And instead of cash, we'll give you these appreciated stocks. You don't have to pay the tax on them, and neither do we. Ah. And so Congress got wind of that and said, no more. That's illegal now. But we're going to exempt mutual fund companies for reasons they never really explained. But that didn't matter much because mutual fund companies, mutual fund companies don't really do that. They never have. They they did, hadn't before, and they haven't since. Right. Mutual fund companies are different from ETFs, right? Yes. In terms of how they work, and they, which is why they wouldn't take advantage of this. They trade generally directly with uh, retail investors. Mm-hmm. An investor opens an account. When they withdraw, when they close that account, they want cash. They don't want a basket of 500 stocks to try to go sell. Right. They want cash. And so mutual funds don't really use this loophole of very often of giving withdrawing investors this pile of securities rather than cash. I have to say, when I read this, I was just thinking about the coordination that ha- that's necessary, right? To get the bank that buys into the fund right a-, a few days ahead of when the selling is planned. So tell me about that coordination and how that came to be. So, I mean, the understanding that we have kind of of how these trades work is that basically a few days before the, the index is due to rebalance, before you know stocks have to kind of like leave the fund, yeah. that the ETF man- manager or their trading desk will pick up the phone and call around a few different banks. Who do they call? So like? they might be Goldman Sachs, for example, okay. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, um, Credit Suisse. Uh, so these banks are, are all what we call authorized participants. Now, this gives them a special privileged role within the ETF ecosystem that basically means that they are the only people that can create and redeem ETF shares. So given that the ETF manager needs to have this big creation coming in so that they can have a big creation going out and, and wash out all of that taxes, they call up these authorized participants, these banks and say, hey, we've got this big index rebound coming up. Would you guys mind you know, doing us a favor? The bank will um and ah about it, look at the kind of economics for them. And ultimately, they will make a decision based kind of on, on the relationship that they have with that ETF. Because they don't get a lot of fees in doing this, right? It's really about the relationship that they're banking they on ultimately. They get zero fees. That by yeah. law, they can't get paid a commission or a fee by the ETF manager for this service they're providing, which costs them a the cost of their capital to be tied up $3 billion for two days. Right. The the cost that it takes to hedge, because obviously the bank is not going to take any risk. They don't want to be exposed to the market. So they're going to hedge their exposure 100%. So they're incurring these small but, uh, small but non-zero costs of doing these transactions. Because... It's, it's all about the relationship. relationship. Exactly. And I future mean, business, right? In, in, other, in other walks of the financial 100%. community. If you, if you are a bank and you are, are doing business with BlackRock or Vanguard, you definitely want to be continuing to do business with BlackRock or Vanguard and you don't want them necessarily well, going to a, another kind of bank. It, but it's, it's important to point out here that some of the market participants, we, we talked to dozens of market participants for this story. They all virtually all give that account. Okay. But when we spoke to the bank's uh, spokespeople and and the um, mutual and the fund manager spokespeople, they gave us a very different account. What do they say? Well, it's important to note that from the IRS's perspective, the IRS may care very deeply whether the banks have some independent economic reason to enter into these transactions, or whether it's just a favor to help someone else avoid taxes. That might be a key thing for the IRS. Mm-hmm. So the banks, the banks and the fund managers basically got legal opinions that said, as long as the bank has some economic reason to do it, it's okay. And so what they've told us on the record is that they believe that the banks have some kind of economic incentive to do this that's independent of them asking them and calling in a favor. Well, it's interesting you brought up to the IRS, because I did wonder about, you know, oversight, as this becomes more well known, you know, what might regulators do? Will they be looking to kind of close this loophole? I don't know. What do you call it? Is it a loophole? Is it a... So the, the, we call them sometimes heartbeats, heartbeats, these large transactions that happen. And that is something that you could imagine the tax uh, authorities, they say they know about them. So we don't know huh. if they're considering doing something or whether they've already kind of privately blessed these transactions. Right. But it's, you could imagine the IRS saying, uh, this is a charade. What you're really doing is selling appreciated stocks to the bank and not paying taxes on it. So 
we're going to call this an abusive transaction and 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 send you a tax bill. Because we haven't seen that happen yet, and it may be that the IRS has decided not to. We don't know. They won't tell us. Because Zach, Rachel, I, I mean, I'm thinking what we're talking billions of dollars, essentially, potentially in tax revenue, right? Yeah, I mean, there were some calculations that Zach and uh, our colleague Carolina worked on, and I think how how much did you work out to be in the end? So. Uh, the big benefit here is is not really avoidance, but deferral. Okay. ETF investors, Good rather point. than having to pay tax every year when the fund uh, realizes gains, they get to sort of save up all those tax bills till the end. Whenever they sell their ETF, sell the ETF, then most but not all of those tax bills will have to be paid. So this is mostly a deferral benefit. Okay. And by our math, something like uh, two hundred and twelve billion dollars of capital gains were essentially avoided by ETFs last year. So that's sort of as if there was like maybe $22, 22 billion or so of, of taxes that would have been due by the ETF investors that they get to essentially defer indefinitely right. until whenever they sell the fund, be it next year or a decade from now. That's Zach Meider and Rachel Evans. It's a great story. They talk about heartbeats. It all has to do with the huge ETF market, a $5 trillion market. It's a tax dodge. It's totally legal, but it's certainly going to have some of us scratching our heads. All right. So amid a lot of flooding in the Midwest, a lot of concerns about climate change, it ultimately is going to affect real estate. Maybe it already is. James Tarmy with us. Great story in the magazine about the coast insurance and ultimately home prices. What's happening? Well, there's not much happening, and this is confusing and concerning a lot of people. The issue is that extreme climate events are uh, increasing in their frequency and severity um, across the United States and across the world. And the issue is that in the United States, at least, insurance premiums are staying completely stable, which doesn't seem correlated to the increased level of risk. And so, and as you say, this is happening all over the place. So let's start close to home, just out on Fire Island, you know, almost to the Hamptons. This is coming to the fore right now. If you walk along the beach, you can see every spring that half the houses have their decks wiped away. And yet people can still build there. And moreover, people are still getting insurance policies to build there. And that's what's so confusing. People have funding from the federal government, and they also have private insurance. And that funding has not gone up in cost, even as the actual cost of that funding has risen dramatically. And so why? What what accounts for this? Well, there are a couple of reasons. On a federal level, it's really about politics. No one wants to be the person who says, we're raising premiums along both coasts, right? There's zero political will. And as a consequence, you have farmers in Nebraska subsidizing people with beach houses in New Jersey. Well, and I, it's interesting when you frame it like that, too, and everything we think about, I feel like, sometimes goes through the lens of politics. And you think about all those fundraisers that are going to happen in the Hamptons, probably starting this summer, leading into the 2020 election, and you wonder whether a homeowner there is going to be uh, as enthusiastic about having a candidate who's like, oh, and by the way, you're going to pay a lot more to have this beautiful house. Exactly. Absolutely no one wants to do it, particularly because... More and more people are moving to the coasts every year. More people move to cities that are along the East Coast and along the West Coast. And then you also have private insurance, and that's something very different, but it's equally flat. And the reason why it's equally flat is that there's a ton of money coming into the insurance market, and there's also very little will um, from state regulators to allow insurance companies to raise premiums to levels that they think might be accurate. Well, let's talk about uh, more about that first point, because that's another sort of Wall Street twist here is mm -hmm. this is a really appealing investment, the insurance side of this, right? Exactly. So there is very little correlation between financial markets and extreme weather events. And so very large funds, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, and others have uh, basically used the reinsurance industry for disaster risk as a hedge against financial markets globally. Um, and that has just resulted in, pardon the pun, a flood of capital um, entering into the reinsurance market, which has made capital extremely cheap and also has disincentivized a lot of uh, 
providers from accurately pricing risk because it's not their money. And meanwhile, as you say, people continue to flock to the coast. You've got some great stats in here. Real estate in Miami Beach up 60% year over year during the most recent fourth quarter yes. in 2018. 24.8% uh, up in Newport. I mean, it's happening everywhere, especially in the more Tony towns, right? Exactly right. Even as the carrying cost of homeownership along the coast is going up, that's not reflected in the prices, which in theory would be going down as right. a result as, of, of these kind of theoretical higher carrying costs. And that's not happening. We're seeing prices increasingly tick upwards. Even in a relatively weak real estate market, especially at the high end, we're seeing prices tick upwards along the coast of real estate because, let's not forget, a lot of these places are for high net worth individuals who are buying houses that are vacation homes. Right. And and you point out in your story very rightly that people don't necessarily think about these as investments necessarily. They almost think about them as a piece of jewelry or something. You know, it, it's, a, it's a luxury item at, at the highest level. Absolutely right. That said, I don't think anyone buys any luxury item except for maybe a new car that they're driving off the lot thinking that it's going to depreciate yes. in value by 30 or 40 percent. And I think that the, the much larger umbrella implications of this entire issue is that um, it could have a tremendous impact on homeownership and uh, home values if insurance companies are gradually raising the price of their premiums to accurately reflect that risk, then all of a sudden there will be a ceiling where the cost of homeownership along the coast will become prohibitive. And when it becomes prohibitive, that will really ding and then oftentimes we've seen in smaller instances cause real estate markets to even collapse as a result. We're spending a lot of time, you and I, talking about the places closer to home for us here in New York and, and maybe on the West Coast as well. But it's a different story when you think about places like Louisiana and other less affluent places in general. This is really where it becomes a federal issue, right? If an investment banker loses his beach house, that's not good for anyone, but that's not devastating for him. If someone who's in a lower income household loses their place of residence, um, they can't go somewhere else. They don't have the money to go somewhere else. And oftentimes they don't even have job prospects to go somewhere else. And so all, you're really looking at the potential for federally funded mass migration, really, where, um, you know, someone has to pick up the pieces and it's not going to be the private sector. That's James Tarmy. Carol, one of our favorites for <laughs> sure. Oftentimes yeah. he's talking about, you know, the latest trends in dance and theater and books. He always sets the scene every season for us. But this is something in some ways, even nearer to people's hearts, especially when you think about the Hamptons, you think about all the coastal mm -hmm. real estate uh, on the East Coast, the West Coast. And those homes are becoming much more vulnerable because of climate change. And what's interesting is James looks at the insurance side of it, the cost of those flood policies, not necessarily keeping up with the potential damage costs. Yeah, I have to say that story did not go where I thought it was going <laughs> to go in many ways. It's a great piece. So not often do we read a story where someone talks about Mother Teresa not being scalable. But once you hear about Dr. Devi Shetty and his hospital, you'll perhaps understand the reference. Ari Alstetter wrote a fascinating feature story this week for the magazine that takes us to a hospital in Bangalore. Ari joining us right now from Mumbai. So great to have you here with us. It's one of my favorite stories. Tell us about Dr. Shetty. Uh, well, Dr. Devi Shetty is a pretty remarkable uh, individual. He was, of course, born in uh, India and um, trained as a, a cardiac surgeon in London, where he noticed that they could do a lot more heart surgeries in a day at Guy's Hospital in London than anyone could do anywhere in India. So he decided, well, I'll go back to India and, and see if I can at least replicate that. Once he did that at a hospital in Kolkata, he started pushing himself a little more at various um, cardiac departments he was hired at all around India uh, until eventually he came up with this idea of what if we treat cardiac surgery like an assembly line, try to break it down into constituent tasks and then have only the most complicated tasks done by the most experienced and highly paid uh, surgeon. Everyone else from junior surgeons to highly trained nurses can handle all the less complicated tasks. He found that once he did this, the cost of surgery went down a lot. 
So he founded his own hospital in Bangalore and has been replicating that model across all these different specialties ever since to produce what we call in the story the cheapest hospital in the world. And he makes a profit. So again, he, the way he does this, and you talk about de-skilling, upskilling, or task shifting. Um, talk to us a little bit more about how this process works. Give us an example. I'm assuming you went to some of the hospitals. Right. Well, I mean, I actually got to watch uh, a few surgeries done in Narayana Hospital. And basically what they do is, is they break up the tasks into more and less complex and ensure that the most complex task, um, you know, for instance, in a heart transplant, that might be moving the patient's heart out and taking, putting the new one in, that's only done by the person who can only do that. So that's the most experienced senior surgeon. Now, so the experienced senior surgeon comes in solely for that part of the operation, but every other part of the operation is done by other less skilled, less expensive people. Whether that be a junior surgeon, and one of the surgeries I went to see was actually Dr. Devi Shetty's son, who was the junior surgeon, but it could also be just highly trained nurses who, who have a lot more training, a lot more experience than a usual nurse, and so they can handle uh, more complex tasks, but it's still cost less than a surgeon. And I mentioned in the introduction Mother Teresa, and what she once, I guess, for a while would go with him on some of his rounds. She inspired him, you write, but he realized that Mother Teresa wasn't scalable. Explain that. Right. Well, when, when Dr. Shetty uh, went back to India from uh, his training in London, his first job was running a cardiac hospital in Kolkata, where, of course, that's where Mother Teresa was working. Um, and Mother Teresa developed a heart condition, so Dr. Shetty ended up treating Mother Teresa. Uh, and they developed quite a bond. Um, uh, he told me that, that when she was in the hospital, as soon as she was well enough, she would just, you know, of her own accord, just start following him around on on his uh, on his rounds and, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the the patients he was serving at that hospital were actually children with heart conditions um, and and it, the favor was returned you know dr. Shetty on his days off he would go visit mother Teresa at her mission uh, in Kolkata and, and so he was very inspired uh, he said to me by her sense of purpose but he thought you know there's so much need in India so many people need heart surgery and whatever other kind of surgery that can't afford it. And even though Dr. Shetty himself would, you know, in Kolkata do free surgery for very poor people, he thought, well, I can't serve all the people uh, who need these surgeries just by doing it for free. It's not, it, 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 you can't scale it, as, as the venture mm -hmm. capitalists might say. Uh, so he decided, well, I need to find a way to make this a business. I need to find a way to make this a profitable enterprise so it can be replicated at scale, not just in Kolkata, not just in one hospital, but all around India. All right, so he did that. He has dramatically reduced costs kind of through his assembly line surgery. He makes a profit. Thrift is everywhere. Um, is it safe? What, what, ha what has been his mortality rates uh, for his surgeries? I'm just curious if they're safer or less safe. The, the numbers that have been released and have been looked at by the various um, uh, academics that have come over to India to do case studies in Narayana actually show that his uh, uh, mortality rates are at least the same, if not better, for select surgeries than uh, U.S. counterparts or international benchmarks. Um, you know, particularly for heart surgeries, which is sort of, uh, um, you know, it's the, it's the it's his, uh, Dr. Shetty's specialty, it's, mm -hmm. it's the specialty that the chain was sort of built on. Um, you know, for cardiac bypass grafts, his uh, survival rates are better than U.S. hospitals. Um, so particularly in these, in these surgeries that uh, Narayana Health has developed a lot of proficiency in, the ones where the assembly line model has been perfected, uh, as much as it can be, and, and where surgeons from Dr. Shetty himself to his various other uh, employees had developed high levels of proficiency by doing literally hundreds of surgeries uh, in the course of just a year, um, the survival rates can actually be better. He's now under pressure to even reduce his cost even more. This has to do with uh, Modi Care, the People's Health Plan in India that is being put in place. Can he do it? Well, uh, Dr. Shetty thinks he can. Uh, he, he, 
you know, is trying his best to apply the same principles that got his cost this far, uh, ones of scale, ones of increasing uh, uh, surgeon's proficiency, one of breaking down tasks in order to uh, lower labor costs and increase utilization rates. Um, he's trying to push that to its limit, but at the same time, he's also looking uh, at uh, more high-tech solutions, namely data. Uh, the people at Narayana, are, they've actually started sort of an in-house tech startup. Um, and what they're trying to do is build a back-end hospital system, hospital administration system that's going to run throughout the hospital and record every bit of data uh, from prescriptions to admissions uh, to bills to complications to use of pacemakers or use of a syringe even or an MRI machine and get all that data and then analyze it. So that's of course our reporter Ari Alstetter. We talked with him from Mumbai, Jason. But I love he talked about Dr. Devi Shetty and his hospital and Dr. Shetty's goal is really to create a model for healthcare that's disassociated from affluence that's his mission. It will be interesting to see how much this is picked up around the world. Mm -hmm. Do you think about the cost of healthcare here versus there in the Western world versus some of these emerging markets? And it is staggering. And his mortality rates for some of the surgery, much better than even some of the developed markets like the United States. For a long time, it was a pipeline company that no one had really heard of until it wasn't. Enter the Dakota Access Pipeline and its owner, Energy Transfer, in the feature section. More on this company thanks to reporter Devin Leonard. So tell us about this company. Because you're right, this isn't the one I feel like we talk about on a regular basis. No, that's the thing. It's, this is a story all about Kelsey Warren. He's the CEO and uh, chairman of Energy Transfer. And basically, Energy Transfer was sort of part of this whole sort of corporate empire. He had a pipeline em empire. Yeah. And there was, there was Energy Transfer Partners. There's Energy tra Transfer Equity. It, they had a, a subsidiary called Sunoco. And they, so they combined a bunch of this stuff. Now they're just Energy Transfer as of October. But basically, you know, a lot of generically na named companies – you know, people, you know, pipelines. People don't see what pipelines. Do they do? They're underground. Exactly. Right. What's in them? Maybe sometimes it's crude oil. But sometimes he was it's happy natural gas. that nobody necessarily, right? Or well, that it was Carol, kind of <laughs> well, yes, because you can make a lot of money. It's a cash cow business. And basically, he became. Uh, you know, one of the world's richest men. Uh, you, you know, at, you know, at the height of of uh, you know of the the I guess the sort of oil boom. You know, two or three years ago, he was worth you know more than seven billion dollars. Well, he, he built was, a lot of pipelines, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the thing is, is that. A lot of their business was in Texas, you know, you know, Oklahoma, places like that, where people, you know, pipelines, the oil business. Hey, come on, it's part of our, you know, we get it, right? Yeah, it's got to build. You know, yeah, the, the, you know, that, that's our industry. It's part of our, you know, local fabric and everything. But then, as the shale revolution took off, and you know, they're finding, you know, you know, gas and oil in places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, and also in North North Dakota, uh, he started building up there, which of course is, you know. It's, you know, it makes sense. There's not enough pipelines there. It's a ton of oil. They got to get it out of there. Right. But Northeasterners are cranky or <laughs> well, <laughs> pushed back. I guess you could say he ran into some pretty cranky people in uh, North Dakota, too. And all of a sudden, uh, energy transfers business wasn't so much fun anymore. Well, what happened? Because you actually start your piece. Um, I think he was testifying, right? And what was going on? Well, there was a shareholder. That's a shareholders uh, shareholders lawsuit. And basically, they were saying that the shareholders were saying they, they were cut out of a deal. Energy transfer issued sort of shares privately to a bunch Warren and a bunch of insiders, and they got sort of guarantees, that, that, you know, that their distributions be protected, whereas the uh, regular shareholders didn't. But but in the midst of that, uh, Warren talk, talks about all his projects, and that's why I wrote about them. But talking about how, hey, you know, we, you know, we're our pipelines are game changers. Nobody's built more of them in the U.S. than we, than, than we have, and you know. And, and and just you know bragging about all this stuff you know you know you know it's, you know, it's kind of fun but then you know the, you know at the same time he's sort of conceding that well you know Dakota Access I got a little bit of fame and you know almost almost like you know kind of kind of cringing over that he's so. an, he's an interesting guy why are you writing about this guy now and this company now well because one of Warren's arguments has been that we're doing nothing wrong. Our problems are being caused by environmentalists who basically just don't like us because they want to keep oil and gas in the ground, you, you know, you know, for climate change reasons. But, um, but, and, you know, you know, and, and they're just making up all the stuff about the spreading, you know, misinformation about this. And he literally, Energy Transfer filed a federal racketeering suit in uh, late 2017, you know, you know, against Greenpeace and a bunch of environmentalists and, you know, saying just that. The problem, though, is, is that. As they're moving into all these other states, 
the people who are pushing back aren't environmentalists. Yeah. They're, they, you know, they're landowners, they're, homeowners, right? Well, to yeah, some and yeah, and, and then you know, you know, environmental officials in states like like Ohio, which is which you know was re- re- controlled by Republicans, and in Pennsylvania, where they've been very supportive. You know, you know, the whole shale boom and the mm-hmm. Marcells, you know, shale fields and all that stuff, and and as you say. Homeowners, and, and also, you know, right now there's, the, you know, they're facing, you know, multiple criminal investigations. So, you know, you know, from Republican, you know, DAs in some counties outside of um, Philadelphia. So, I mean, to say this is all, you know, you know, this is all being cooked up by, you know, by 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 a bunch of greenies. That's just not true. But it's kind of fascinating—a snapshot into this kind of individual and company. Where do we stand, though, with with the shareholder suit and well, the well, drilling? Well, and- they, they, the energy transfer, you know, won, won the shareholder suit. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, basically, a judge refused to, you know, to, to overturn the private share issue. There have been a couple of projects that they, that you know, you know, that were they were under fire on. Dakota Access is one. The Rover Pipeline in, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, the Midwest was another. Mariner East is, you know, is the one in 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 Pennsylvania that that's sort of usually controversial. But Dapple Dakota Access has come online. Rovers come online too. They're 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 still having problems in Pennsylvania, and they're and they're facing you know, multiple criminal investigations. So yeah, I mean, he wishes that they were kind of more unknown. Well, the the interesting thing here's here's <laughs> like Carol, it used to be. Well, Carol, here's really where we are now. Where we are now is that you know uh, in February. Uh, Warren finally said, "Hey, we made some mistakes." He did, <laughs> yeah, in a conference call. So, so I mean, m- maybe, m- maybe that's the beginning of something because, because I think a lot of people, people would say, you know, smart guy, really great deal maker, but too aggressive, right? And 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 and, and that's gotten the company in, into trouble. So that's Devin Leonard, our reporter, and it was interesting. This is a pipeline company, not one that we talk about every day. Energy transfer, nor its CEO. But it is certainly front and center now, and he is front and center right now. Absolutely. And you think about the twists and turns of the energy market, mm-hmm. and people have come to the fore, faded away. It's a boom and bust business, yeah. but certainly much more in the spotlight these days. So more pressure than ever on CEOs, thanks to social media, activist investors, and the world simply moving faster. So the strategy section this week taps into what's necessary to be a leader today. Dimitri Kassanides is editor of the section. So smart to take a dive into this because I do feel like CEOs have more pressure on them than ever. They've really got to hit the ground running. Yeah. Think about it. Shareholders, right, are acting up. Lots of activist (laughs) investors. You know, companies are complicated and complex these days. They're different. Running them is different. How you hire people, how you groom people. They have a very short sort of timeline to prove themselves. Uh, Social media does put pressure. All kinds of media attention puts pressure. So, um, and then how we consume technology. Like, think about the tools that people use today and how much much. that both (laughs) can make your life more efficient, but it can also, like, make your life kind of crazy, right? So, we decided that um, we were getting, you know, from time to time we look at some of this stuff and we're taking a deeper dive into it on occasion now in Business Week in this section and trying to offer people really meaningful, you know, advice and information about how to go forward in their leadership roles, whether you're a CEO, C-suite, you know, senior level yeah. manager, that that that's what we're trying to do. A tool book. No, it's great. Well, yeah. I thought there was a fascinating stat um, yeah. that was in there. More than 1,400 CEOs who left their positions last year, 25% more than in 2017 and just shy of the highest annual CEO departures, which was back during the financial crisis. Exactly. Yep. Wow. It's a big number. So, big so there's a lot of rotation. There's a lot of that door. That door is revolving. And that's the story that we have in this section that really looks at you have a very short timeline to prove your what do you do? Yeah. How do you go in there, establish some priorities, decide what your mode of communication is going to be with everybody, be open, you know, manage expectations so that people understand my goals are these for the next six months, attach a timeline to it. Shareholders really get the idea of three month increments, right? Yeah. Given quarters and all. Right. So, you know, that's one piece of advice. Don't but overcommit, it's re- right? Don't overcommit. I mean, be realistic, be aspirational, certainly, but be very realistic 
um, because the pressure is on and you really have so many different populations of people looking to you to prove yourself. Um, and it and it shouldn't be solely focused on just what the shareholders are demanding. You've got a whole company of people you're leading. Yeah, you got to think about at all levels. Right? So you've got to try to look at everybody. So that was one story that felt like this was the right moment, given that statistic and given what we see right every day, the news, yeah. the people under, you know, under the spotlight, the CEOs. In and out quickly. Um, I love the first line. There's another story. Um, and this one talks about somewhere between lunatic risk taking and paralyzing risk aversion exists a sweet spot of prudent risk taking. Risk. Yeah, risk. You know, so people think uh, the thing with risk is if you're too much of a risk taker. But in fact, risk aversion can be a problem as well. Yeah. Um, I think we headlined it, you know, don't play it too safe. Because what you need today, again, in this world, this complicated world of leading a company is the ability to really balance things and measure like how much you've got to push the envelope and how much you've got to pull back a little bit. And so many things factor into that your personality, Mm -hmm. which of course, CEOs tend to have personality types where they're very certain of themselves and they're very sure, but not across the board is everybody quite that assertive. (laughs) So how do you both assert yourself in the risk that you're going to take, but also measure it in a way that you're going to really be balanced? It's a a tricky line to toe. And we also, we do tend to think, well, they're CEOs, they're going to do what they're going to do. Not necessarily the case. And admire it, but it's not always a good thing. Right, exactly. So that was a really fun one. That was because there's a lot of research, not surprisingly, from many different um, sort of realms uh, in science and in health looking at that. And our our writer on that um, really dug deep into the various studies to say, you know, some, I think, to put together a very interesting and useful look at basically how to be a better risk taker. Well, just a a couple of highlights. I'm not going to give it all away, but anger makes men, not women, more willing to gamble. Disgust increases risk aversion, especially in women. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. Kind of, uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's necessarily so surprising, but you see it like that and you're presented with it and you think, aha. Uh-huh. Um, so th- people will find some other interesting tidbits in there. I think about, again, the the fact, the, the emotional factor right. in risk is especially, is especially interesting. Well, and, so. I also, and you have something to say about narcissism. Narcissism. Yeah. You know, you think it's a bad thing, but having a little bit of, like You've most leaders have, have a little bit yeah. of it, right? I mean, and, you know, there's a, one researcher who says, look, we've all got a degree of narcissism, right? Otherwise, yeah. we none of us would get up and get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> but you have to have, uh, you know, there's a dose of it that's just that much more for the people in these positions. And it is it is essential. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to lead them to the right decisions. So you've a lot of this is actually tips about how to how to identify the kind of personality and the emotions that you're going through, right. how to tap into that, and then how to redirect that in a way that's going to enable you to make the decisions. Like kind of you understand your own emotional bias. In right, it, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Hey, so also it says beware of decision fatigue. And speaking of fatigue, what about screen fatigue? So much screen fatigue, yeah. right? Don't we all have it? Yes. I mean, some days I really want to throw the phone out the window and never have to look at it again. Between computer screens, our mobile phones, everything. So there is an expert at Georgetown University, Cal Newport. He's written some books about mm-hmm. some of these issues. And our writer talked to him and we have our six you know, actionable items that you can take. Um, really, really reasonable and practical about how to manage that, how to work in breaks, how to identify essential versus non-essential time on the screens, right. um, how to really minimize how much time in the day. For example, you know, how many emails do we get each day? The average number is in the story. It's an insane number. It's nuts. You have to be able to just give it a scan, pick out the essential stuff and put the other stuff aside and say, this is, I have 10 minutes to answer these five essential emails. Right. So it's, it's along those lines and it's crucial because you need to free up that space in the brain to be a little more creative or to just sort of step back and be a little bit more open so that when people are coming at you with other kinds of problems or complex issues, you do have the brain space to really process it all and, you know, and, and just more appropriately, more adequately, more certainly kind of take the actions that you're going to take. I don't want to give it away, but they also talk about getting crafty. So like do something else with your hands that you can like stop being at a computer or your phone. Exactly. Um, There's also, okay, so he's got advice. There's also uh, a bunch of books that you guys talk about, leadership books. So yeah. maybe get ready to make some room on your shelves for a whole new round for, of leadership uh, books. For a whole new round of leadership books. I mean, look, there's no shortage of them no. out there, right? We tried to 
make a selection because they're landing on our desks every day, everywhere. <laughs> and we thought, wow, what are these books saying? And there are a lot of them right now that talk about like, throw out all the rules. There are no rules. You make it's where rules. we are in the cycle. And we stopped and we thought, oh, gee, is that really the wisest advice? So we decided, let's take a look at these four. What are they saying about the rules that they think we can scrap? What are they offering in place of those rules? And what does that really do to help somebody? There was one that was really funny. You talked about le- leadership and it says, go ahead and play favorites. And you know, ditch your open door policy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, be accessible, but open door policy can be problematic. Yeah. You have to be there all the time. Right. And again, it level it raises an expectation that you might not be able to meet. Um, but yeah, play favorites because that's about reward, right? That's like mm-hmm. you have high performers, right. let them know they're high performers, right. reinforce that and ensure that that continues. And that sends a message to other people as well. That's right. So, not everybody's the same. Not everybody gets an award at the end of the race. No, 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 no. I know <laughs> we medal. live in a world that makes us all feel like we all should be getting awards. Like you woke up, hey, you get an award. It's not you how it showed works. up at the office. But no, that's not how it works. One last book because we recently did the equality issue oh, uh, yeah. for the magazine. And this is Joanne Lippman. She is someone who really gets workplace mm-hmm. gender issues. She's got a new book. That's what she said, what men need to know and women need to tell them about working together. Exactly. So this is her paperback version just came out. She made some changes because this book came out just as Me Too was really taking mm-hmm. off. And then over the course of the next year, you know, we really came to learn a lot more. But Joanna's talking a lot about, uh, you know, I think to me, the t- takeaway from this is really communication, that people need to be open and not afraid to actually, frankly, if you as a woman are seeing something or confronted with an uncomfortable situation, you have to try to say something about it. Right. And the man really needs to listen, but a man needs to be more open as well. And um, and this idea that Like, suddenly, I don't know what to do. Tell me what is the right behavior at this exactly. point. Exactly. I mean, because, you know, a lot of men, I will say, are throwing their hands up and right. saying, either I don't know what to do, or I'm so scared, I think I'm going to do nothing. Right. Well, that's not really a way to approach it. So um, we talked to Joanne, and we hope people will go and seek out the book and think about what she has to say. She's been, mm-hmm. you know, she's a former editor-in-chief of USA Today and a um, creative officer, chief creative officer at Gannett. And um, she knows a lot about these dynamics. I think she's had to deal with them very much in her own career right. as has well. Has seen the so. cycles, has seen what's happened, the evolution or lack thereof. But we um, couldn't ignore those kinds of things. In today's working world, and especially for leaders, like, you you know, you need to keep those issues top, put top my, of mind as well. I'm putting my phone down. Yeah. I love that exactly. one. Exactly. That's Demetra Kessanides, our editor of our strategy section. And she really makes the point that there's more pressure than ever on CEOs from day one uh, on the job. And so these are a bunch of tools that might help them uh, figure out how to do it more quickly. I'm a sucker for these types of stories, too. <laughs> sort of the list of what you should be reading, the distillations of it. And Demetra always tells it so well. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast. Download, subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.